for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Welcome, listeners, to Black Clock Audio Tales. It's October, and let's get spookier than last month. So yeah, we're going to be doing ghost stories, starting with Lucky's Grove, then Nightwire, Man's Size in Marble, A Neighbor's Landmark, Morella, Rats, The Death of Halpin Frazier, The Resurrectionist, and the residence at Whitmeister. So that's uh, the the stories we're going to have coming up for the next couple of days there. And then after that, we're going to have another intro here. And we're going to have a bunch of other collection of ghost stories and spooky stories, mostly ghost stories. And maybe we'll have some uh, people talking about ghost stories for the show. Thank you again so much, and if you want to know how to help the show, go to pgttcm.com and click on Info. There's also a Shop button, and you can see where the audiobooks are and where the bits and pieces for our monthly Cthulhu Mythos show is. If you want to help the show grow, want more Cthulhu Mythos episodes, let us know. Let us know what's going on. If you're having problems with the RSS feed, let us know. Let us know what's going on, and thank you so much, everyone. All right, let's have some spooky stories read to you by Morgan Scorpion. This episode's brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. Check them out. Dino Sound Slippers, cool cult film shirts that you can wear. Keep your feet warm. Keep your torso looking cool. Winter's coming. Embrace slippers. Something like that. Let's go. Brian Howlett was in love with Pauline Allen. It was, alas, an unrequited passion, for she had been dead for fifty years, and the only record of her brief existence was a collection of old photographs and a weather-stained headstone in the local churchyard. At seventeen, fifty years is a vast desert of time that stretches far beyond the frontiers of imagination and Brian thought of that long-dead girl as one who had lived in a foreign country. She had been a cousin of his maternal grandmother, and had, so far as he could ascertain, died of some unspecified disease back in 1923. The photographs, preserved in a family album, portrayed a slim, dark-haired girl with large, beautiful eyes, and a sad, haunting smile. Most of the pictures had been taken out of doors, 
standing against a background of full-bloomed flowers, sitting in a deck-chair, standing on a hill, with her hair blown into a black, rumpled veil, while she laughed. The camera had frozen that laugh, captured the gleam of white teeth, the joy-bright eyes, the way her head was flung back. But one picture had her seated in the living-room in the very armchair that Brian's father still used. But now she was smiling gently, her eyes faintly mocking, as they looked down the long corridor of time. Brian's mother laughed with fond indulgence. "'Gracious me, how you carry on! She died before I was born. Fifty years is a long time. I think she came here for visits during the summer months, and your grandfather must have taken those photographs. My word, if she were alive today, she'd be over seventy. But she must have died in this house, Brian pointed out. Otherwise, she wouldn't be buried in the local churchyard. She did indeed, Mrs. Howlett agreed. My mother told me about it once. Funny, I've only just remembered. Your grandmother was seated in that very chair when she said, Pauline dropped dead in the garden one summer's day. I expect she mentioned the funeral and lots of other things, but none of it sang in. I wasn't really interested, because after all I had never met her. The headstone told him nothing but the bold, simple facts. Pauline Allen, born May 30th, 1903, died July 7th, 1923. The grave had been sadly neglected and was now a mere lump of grass-covered earth that in a few years would disappear altogether. Brian did not attempt to cut the grass or clean the headstone because it was the tenant he loved, not the house. But once in a while he would put some flowers in a jam jar and plant it in a nest of tall grass a simple tribute such as any young man might bring his sweetheart and passion fed upon itself and became an obsession then one evening his dream world exploded they were seated round the dinner table and mr howlett was carving the roast beef when he broke the momentous news the new motorway it's coming down pillbeam lane brian's mother stared at him with an expression of shocked dismay no he nodded i said so didn't i the lane will be swallowed up and a goodish stretch of old jarvis's fields as well to say nothing of the churchyard mrs howlett was now really shocked the churchyard what will they do with the bodies we bury them in the new part i suppose most of the old tombstones will be used as paving stones you see, no one has been buried in that part which borders the lane for nigh on forty years, so it's unlikely there'll be much fuss. Any case, there's nothing we can do. It's all been decided. Mrs. Howlett said, I suppose not, and got down to the immediate task of dishing up the roast potatoes. Mr. Howlett dismissed the subject by saying, It's going to be noisy with all that traffic roaring by our front door. Still, I suppose it's progress. At first Brian was shocked, horrified, and almost demented in grief. Then came the great thought. Pauline Allen, after an absence of fifty years, was coming back. The body that had posed for photographs, sat in his father's chair, and finally dropped dead in the garden, was, 
by the grace of Her Majesty's Ministry of Works, coming up from the grave. The exile was about to pay a fleeting visit to the country of her birth and death, and thus present an opportunity for the lover to meet his beloved. No general had ever planned his campaign as Brian devised and rehearsed the attack, which must be made on the forces of the commonplace. He was there when the road gang began to demolish the low churchyard wall. No general had ever planned his campaign as Brian devised and rehearsed the attack which must be made on the forces of the commonplace. He was there when the road gang began to demolish the low churchyard wall. Where will you put them? The large, friendly-looking labourer leaned on his shovel, then spat with accomplished ease. You got somewhere in there, have you? Brian had his fiction well prepared. Yes, a grandmother. You don't say so. Fancy that now. A grandmother, is it? Don't fret yourself. Her bones will be treated with as much reverence as though the Archbishop of Canterbury was handling them himself. See that long shed they're putting up in that field? He pointed to a partly erected shed. That allows them a treat until such times as they can be reburied proper-like. Suppose the coffins are... Broken up, all rotted to bits. Then they piles the bones in one respectful heap, and there won't be so much as a finger out of place. Take my word for it. Brian was always there. The foreman ordered him away on several occasions, but he just disappeared from one place only to emerge in another, and by the third day he was accepted in an off-hand sort of way. There was something rather appealing about this slim, melancholy youth, who fetched their tea and cigarettes, and always seemed to melt into the background whenever the work superintendent put in an appearance. In the meantime, the work of raising the long dead continued. Forgotten graves were opened. Bones that had not walked in the sun for the best part of a century glimmered like white shards on the lush summer grass. Skulls, ivory orbs from which the divine spark of reason had long since fled, now grinned up at the cloud-flecked sky. Coffin boards, earth-stained, weakened by damp rot, were stacked into ragged piles and burns. A heap of tarnished brass handles was examined with curiosity, then mysteriously disappeared. On the fifth day they opened the grave of Pauline Allen. Brian held his breath when he saw the coffin being raised, but the anxiety turned to joy when he realised it was intact. No cracks, free from damp. It looked as solid as the day it had been lowered into the earth. Sandy soil, dry as a bone, one workman explained to another. I bet she's just as complete inside this box. No air can get in, see? They carried Pauline Allen into the temporary mortuary, and Brian waited for nightfall. A torch, a screwdriver, and a lever. Brian Howlett needed little else when he went forth to meet his beloved. She would be intact. The workman had said so. But there were disquieting stories that told how she would disintegrate once the coffin lid was raised. But would that matter? One glimpse of those features was all he required, and memory would create a picture that time would never erase. It had not been thought necessary to take any strong security measures against a possible break-in. Who would want to steal a disinterred coffin or a heap of bleached bones? With a single protesting crack, the cheap rimlock surrendered to Brian's lever, and he was there, in the limbo which separated one grave from another. The travellers from this interrupted journey lay on narrow shelves, bones, 
skulls, broken coffins, the intact. His search took the best part of twenty minutes, but at last he found her, Pauline's coffin, with her name engraved on a small, tarnished brass plate, lay on the floor against the far wall. The screws had corroded, and their heads fell away at the first application of his screwdriver, so he was obliged to use the lever. A cracking, a series of pistol-shot sounds that must surely be heard by the night watchman who sat by his fire on the far side of the churchyard. But no one came to investigate, so he went back to work. Twice more he inserted the lever, then the lid was free and he was able to rest. He must be calm. Damp down the fires of excitement and hope. Perhaps there was only a skeleton with a grinning skull and naked bones waiting to greet him under the loose lid. But if so, he must not give way to a storm of bitter disappointment. After all, the bones would be her bones, the skull, her skull, and almost certainly her hair would be there. He laid the torch in such a position on a nearby shelf, so that its white beam was directed onto the coffin. Then, after taking a deep breath, removed the lid. Five, ten seconds passed. Then he sighed, like one who has entered heaven against all expectations. The photographs had lied. They had depicted a very pretty girl. In fact, she was beautiful. The hair was not black, but auburn. The long white face, the sweet retroussé nose, the long eyelashes, the full lips, all combined to present a picture of soft, sensitive beauty. Brian held his breath. Would the air make her crumple into dust? How long before the apparent firm flesh disintegrated, the cheeks fell away, the red lips became seared rose petals, the eyes yawning caverns? Every minute that passed was a bonus. The longer her image remained unimpaired, the deeper would her portrait be etched on his brain. As the minutes passed, he began to marvel at the freshness, the unexpected purity. The white nightgown might have been fresh from a washing machine. Her hair gleamed with a myriad of glittering lights. Her skin was without blemish. Presently he dared to touch. The face was soft, and this must have been the result of his fevered imagination. Warm, as though healthy blood still coursed through the long dead veins. He whispered, I wish, oh God, I wish. Her eyes opened, cornflower blue, clear as a wind-swept sky. They moved slightly and looked up at him. The lips parted, a little pink tongue licked white teeth. Then she whispered, Where am I? Who are you? Terror blended with joy and became ecstasy. A miracle, a freak of nature that was beyond his comprehension. Or had he, in some unexplainable way, activated some forgotten law and given her life? There could be a thousand answers. But whatever, however, it did not matter. She lived, she breathed, whispered and looked up at him with a shy, questioning glance. It was so easy to answer her, so natural. You're in your coffin. You died fifty years ago. She lay looking up at the gabled ceiling for a little while, as though pondering on this not unexpected reply. Then, I remember. I was standing in the garden, and the sunlight was sending golden spears through the leaves of the elm tree. Do you ever think like that? Golden spears of light, a grey curtain of mist, 
there was a great pain in my chest and a mighty roaring in my ears. I remember thinking, I am hearing the waves of oblivion crashing over the rocks of eternity. Now, he said, you are alive again. Yes, I am. She tried to nod, but the weakness of the reborn did not permit movement. I wonder why. It seems only a moment ago since that summer day in the garden. But you say fifty years have passed. There is no such thing as time, he said. Only events surrounded by empty space. You died, now you live. One event cancels out the other. It is so simple. She managed to smile. You are so young, yet so profound. I feel weak and tired. I must sleep. A great fear flared up into a searing flame. If you sleep, you'll... Her eyes closed, but his straining ears caught the whispered words. I won't die again. You, you, won't let me. She slept, peacefully, silently, with only the almost imperceptible rise and fall of her breast to tell him that the recaptured life had not departed. One fact was clear. She must not could not remain in this charnel house. It was such a delicate operation, requiring patience and much careful thought, for after fifty years she must of a necessity be fragile. He slid one arm under her shoulders, and another under her knees, then, after a long anxious pause, lifted her out of the coffin. She was so light. He could have tossed that white body up into the air with no trouble at all, but well, of course the idea was unthinkable. He carried her out of the shed with the same care and solicitude as that of a mother bearing her first-born child. He walked down the empty moonlit road with the proud step of a conqueror, the gay recklessness of an adventurer, for had he not snatched a prize from the black-taloned claws of King Death himself, gone down into the dark places and looted the treasure-house of Pluto and Proserpine? No one saw him carrying his precious burden under the star-speckled canopy of night, save for a screech-owl that squatted on the swaying bough of an oak-tree, and watched the passing traveller with round, unblinking eyes. Just before he reached his father's house, Pauline awoke and whispered her soft inquiry into his ear. "'Where are you taking me?' "'Home. Where else? The place where you—' "'Died?' she laughed softly, a sweet, silvery sound— and his love became as a red, full-bloomed flower. You must not be afraid to say that word. But will they understand? Will they believe? Called back to life after fifty years? A likely story. They will throw me out into the street. Why had he not thought of that? It was so true. He could imagine his mother's shocked face, his father's righteous anger. They would say he was mad that this white shadow of a girl was a wanton, a refugee from respectability. "'I will hide you,' he said. "'Where?' The question was followed by a bubble of laughter, as if she knew a perfect solution to the problem, but doubted his ability to find one. "'You live in such a small house.' "'The attic,' he nodded slowly. "'Yes, that is it, the attic. No one goes up there now, and there's an old studio couch.' but you will have to be very quiet. I will be as silent as death, she promised. Merciful God, how light she was. 
even though he had been carrying her for almost a quarter of a mile there was no feeling of fatigue no straining of arm muscles no longing to put his burden down when he opened the back door he was able to hold her with one arm while turning the handle with the other she murmured you are strong and a little bud of self-confidence opened its petals to a new-born sun the stairs had to be climbed one step at a time and there was an anxious moment when he passed his parents door but he was permitted to continue up to the deserted attic without hearing a protesting call he pressed a wall switch and a naked electric bulb sprang into instant eye-searing light discarded furniture heaps of forgotten books old clothes a tennis racket a broken violin they all silently proclaimed their allegiance to the dead years even the studio couch which lay like a forsaken altar under the dormer window seemed to be mourning for the long departed visitor it was on this that brian laid his beloved put a pillow under her head covered her slim body with an old bedspread then sat down to gaze upon the pale smiling face you must be tired carrying me all that way she said not a bit can i talk to you for a while if you like what do you want to talk about you what was it like back in your world she gave him a shy questioning look and he tried to remember time-shrouded dreams that had been lost in childhood it was like living blackness an occasional gleam of light harsh sounds that were sometimes broken by a chord of music you were there everyone who has ever lived was there you make it sound so ordinary it was ordinary the disease called commonplace has afflicted every generation only exceptional people can find the one certain cure he sipped from the tiny cup of happiness i always wanted to know a girl who could talk like that you are exceptional her hand made a movement as though to touch his but due possibly to weakness it slid back to its original position on the couch i am whatever you believe i am doubts black thoughts thin shreds of knowledge tumbled across his brain like dead leaves before a howling wind but the solid reality of her presence and the cool serenity in her eyes enabled him to stabilize the trembling foundations of transformed reality you are yourself as you have always been he did not see her eyes close or actually notice the moment when her consciousness was cut off but suddenly she was a still silent figure that looked so young so defenceless a waif that had been snatched from a foreign shore he rearranged the bedspread added an old overcoat in case she should become cold during the night then tiptoed from the room much later when he finally fell asleep he became lost in a maze of nightmares that became blurred memories the moment he awoke next day the news sprang from mouth to mouth then gathered itself up into a ball and became a gruesome story when mr howlett came home at lunchtime he could scarcely wait to close the door before the words came pouring off his tongue what do you know some nut has pinched a body from its coffin no 
Mrs. Howard sat down and allowed the wave of terrifying but exhilarating excitement to overcome her. Well, I never... And, Brian's father delivered his second bombshell, you'll never guess whose coffin it was. Mrs. Howlett's hand flew to her mouth. Not, don't say, he nodded vigorously. I am going to say it, Pauline Thingamabob, the girl that was buried from this very house. What do you think of that? Brian trembled. She had been asleep when he popped in that morning, even while he wondered when he would be able to sneak some food up to the attic. Mrs. Howlett was shaking her head. Who would have done such a thing? Degenerates, Mr. Howlett stated. Black magic, devil worshippers and such like. Though what they want with a skeleton is beyond me. That's right, his wife agrees. Stands to reason. After all this time, she must be a skeleton. Brian smiled and remembered the white body that was waiting for him in the attic. And we signed the forms his father went on. I guess she's our responsibility, but I can't think of anything we can do. I wonder if she has any relatives still living, Mrs. Howlett added thoughtfully. Surely there must be someone left. Brian was able to scrape together a meal when Mrs. Howlett was out shopping, a portion of cold steak and kidney pie, some tinned peas, two cold potatoes and a glass of milk. More he dare not take for fear that it might be missed. He carried his offering up to the attic, and there found Pauline wide awake and prepared to reward him with a welcoming smile. I thought you were never coming. What have you got there? Not much, he confessed, but all I could manage under the circumstances. I hope you like it. I'm not very hungry. Put it down somewhere and I'll eat it later. What have you been doing? listening to my father. He sat down on a rickety dining-room chair. They found your empty coffin, and there's an awful fuss. They think your body was stolen by devil-worshippers. Oh, no! What a scream! I bet you could hardly stop yourself laughing. Actually, I was a bit scared. I mean to say, suppose they knew what was really happening. I say, listen to this. Mother couldn't imagine what devil-worshippers would want with your body because, wait for it, it would only be a skeleton. Cheek! I ask you, do I look like a skeleton? No, of course not. Do you feel stronger now? She frowned and began to flex her arms and wiggle her toes. Not really. Mind you, I feel fine. Absolutely top-rate. But I guess I'll be able to be up and about in a few days. You'll feel much stronger when you have eaten, Brian pointed out. You must be hungry. Perhaps I've grown out of the habit of eating, she suggested. But just maybe it will come back. I wouldn't know, she giggled. I've never been brought back to life before. Before he could comment on this statement, there came from below the sound of a door being opened and instantly Brian sprang to his feet, terrified lest his secret be discovered. As he ran to the attic door, Pauline laughed and intoned in a soft, mocking voice, Poor little boy, he's afraid of his mother, and dreams all day of being a great lover. Mrs. Howlett looked up as he entered the kitchen. Oh, there you are. I thought you were out. I was upstairs. 
she filled the kettle and put it on the gas stove. "'You'll never guess what I've been up to. "'You remember the girl whose remains were stolen? "'Pauline Allen? "'Well, I found her brother.' "'Brother!' "'It was as though a bucket of cold water had been poured down his back. "'How could there be a living link between then and now? "'But it's such a long time ago. Fifty years. "'There's lots of people who were alive fifty years ago, silly. "'Of course, he's an old man.' Seventy-six or so. You see, I'd been thinking, and suddenly remembered a bundle of letters that had been left by my mother. I knew I hadn't thrown them away, and sure enough, I found them at the back of the dressing-table drawer. Two were from a Mr. Henry Allen. Imagine, he still lives at the same address. He's in the telephone directory. You... you rang him up? Brian gasped. Of course. Why not? He's driving down this evening. Brian wanted to yell, shout at the top of his voice, let her know that this old man must not be allowed to tear the protecting veil from the time-scarred face of yesterday. Instead, he said, Why? What does he want? Mrs. Howlett looked at her son with shocked surprise. What does he want? Naturally he's concerned when some, some vandal desecrates his sister's coffin. Apart from which we are some kind of relatives. Funny, he never knew I existed. Then his father came in, and there was much talk of ill winds that blow no one any good, and dark hints as to the mysterious ways of providence, and Brian wanted to tell them to shut up and leave the sacred past alone. So you found yourself a cousin, exclaimed Mr. Howlett for the third time. Brian's mother giggled. Heaven knows how many times we moved. He tells me that he came here for the funeral. Fancy that. Now he's coming back for the first time in fifty years. Pity it's not under more cheerful circumstances, Mr. Howlett remarked with suitable gravity. Well, he was only a young man at the time, and after all this time there can't be any real grief. Strange to think that she'd have been an old lady herself. After a long and thoughtful silence, Mrs. Howlett said, one thing. She never knew what it was like to grow old. Brian nodded, and then began to smile. Mr. Henry Allen came at sunset. A withered little dead moth of a man, dressed in a black suit and a white shirt with an old-fashioned starched collar. He also favoured a black, wide-brimmed hat and a pair of gold-rimmed spectacles. He looked neat, well-washed, and bone-dry. Mrs. Howlett put him in the best armchair, and Mr. Howlett offered him a glass of sherry. His refusal was delivered in a strange, harsh, precise voice. I never wet my lips with alcoholic beverages. Mr. Howlett hastily put the decanter back on the sideboard, and pretended not to notice the implied rebuke. I see. How about a cup of tea or something? The gold-rimmed spectacles gave him a cold, gleaming stare. Thank you, no. I had my tea before I set out, and I make it a habit not to indulge between meals. The second rebuff rather impeded the even flow of conversation, and for a while there was an embarrassed silence. Then the visitor inquired, Have they apprehended the miscreants yet? Mr. Howlett frowned. The, uh, I, I beg your pardon? The monsters! "'The grave-robbers! The ghouls!' "'Oh! No, I'm afraid not. "'The night-watchman heard and saw nothing. 
Mr. Allen grunted deep down in his throat, and Brian was reminded of an old and evil-tempered dog. "'Probably asleep. There's no sense of duty these days. No labourer worthy of his hire. "'What is your occupation, Brother Howlett?' Surprise at the claim to close relationship seemed to temporarily paralyse Mr. Howlett's tongue. But after a quick glance at his wife, he said, "'I am a storeman.' "'We all have our place in the vineyard,' Mr. Allen stated, before turning his attention to Mrs. Howlett. "'I understand that you never knew my sister.' She shook her head. "'No, she died three years before I was born.' "'Is that so? Yet you are a woman well advanced into middle life. The Lord does snatch the years away before we have had time to taste them. Well, let me say here and now you suffered no loss.' "'though we are told not to speak ill of the dead. "'I cannot do other than testify that she was an evil and godless woman.' "'Mrs. Howlett murmured, "'Surely not,' and Mr. Howlett looked deeply interested. "'Mr. Allen raised a reproving finger. "'I am not a man to make unfounded statements, "'or to bear false witness against man or woman. "'But even after the lapse of fifty years "'I can still smell the stench of depravity "'and hear the laugh of blasphemous mockery.' "'He shook his head violently. "'It is terrifying to realise that even now "'her soul is burning in the unquenchable fires of hell.' "'You are wrong.' "'The three words rang out across the room "'and had the effect of cutting Mr. Allen off in mid-sentence, "'a form of indignity to which he was clearly not accustomed.' He looked inquiringly at Brian's father. "'Do you permit the young to interrupt their elders without rebuke? I ask purely out of interest, as I am fully aware that the morals and behaviour of the present generation are such as to make a God-fearing man shudder. But I would have thought that common courtesy—' "'Of course, you are absolutely right,' Mr. Howlett glared at his son. "'Brian, you will apologise to Mr. Allen at once. I can't think what has come over you.' The boy hung his head and muttered a reluctant apology that Mr. Allen accepted by a grave inclination of his head. He then continued. "'I will not sully your ears with an account of the foul iniquities that she perpetrated during her short lifetime. Sufficient to say they were such as to send my parents to an early grave and sow my soul into a lifelong distaste for the female sex. Verily is the scarlet woman an abomination before the Lord.' and her beauty a mask that hides the running sores of corruption. Brian could sit and listen to no more. He sprang to his feet, and very near to tears ran from the room. He ignored his father's angry shout, his mother's protesting cry, was aware only of a great mind-shattering pain that was burning down the flimsy temples of youth. As the boy ran down the main street, and then out into the open fields, he tried so hard to evade the threat to his own very private Arcadia. The girl from the photographs, whom he had always seen through the veils of purity and gentleness, would not even know the meaning of the words, depravity, evil, corruption, and was protected by the impregnable armour of innocence. He flung himself down on the ground, and attempted to stem the encroaching stream of doubt. A twisted bigoted old man, a hunter after evil, a religious maniac that had long ago lost touch with reality. 
There was comfort in these assertions, and a measure of reassurance. Then he remembered that Pauline Allen was at that very moment lying on a couch in the attic, waiting with childlike, unquestioning trust for him to come to her, and at once the insidious stream retreated. When Brian Howlett rose, it was with the certain knowledge that the first battle had been won, but he would never be the same person again. In some strange way, he felt older. Pauline was still reclining on the studio couch when he entered the attic that night. He sat down and looked reproachfully at the untouched food. She laughed and shook her head. I told you I wasn't hungry. In some subtle way, she too had altered. The face had become fuller. Almost imperceptible lines were traced around the mouth. The eyes seemed brighter and watched him with a sly, calculating expression. What has been happening? He hesitated for a moment. But she had to be told, if for no other reason than he wanted to hear her indignant denials. Your brother was here this evening, he said quietly. Henry? Not really. Gosh, he must be an old man. Over seventy, I believe. Good heavens, who would have credited it? She lay still and stared smilingly up at the ceiling. Poor little Henry. I remember him as a bespectacled, is that the right word, go to church on Sunday, young man, you know, a Bible in one hand and an umbrella in the other. He was, I fear, an awful bigot, always looking for clouds in a clear sky. His own thoughts, his own wishes, were being echoed by that soft young voice. He wallowed in a pool of spine-tingling happiness. I knew it. Old people don't suddenly become narrow-minded, stupid and cruel. They just grow worse as they get older. That's very true. Did... did he say anything about me? Brian watched her through half-closed eyes. Yeah, he said you were depraved, evil, a scarlet woman. I did not wait to hear any more. I ran out. My parents are still very annoyed. Good for you. I can just imagine him saying those dreadful things. Pauline screwed her face up into a forbidding scowl and imitated Henry's cold, precise voice. It is terrifying to remember that even now her soul is burning in the unquenchable fires of hell. I say, those were his very words. How on earth did you know? The slender shoulders shrugged. I didn't. How could I? But he always talked like that. Limbs of Satan, scarlet women, brazen hussies. There was no end to the list. Mind you, I was a bit mischievous. You weren't. I most certainly was. Pauline tried to sit up, but the effort seemed to be beyond her powers. Listen to this. Henry was fond of taking cold baths. Thought they were manly. Guess what? I put a long grass snake in his bath water. You should have heard him scream. Their subdued laughter merged and became a happy ripple of sound. Then, when silence had returned to the attic, Pauline asked, Have you ever played jokes on people? No. Why not? There's no harm. I don't know. It never occurred to me. You're scared. Afraid to take a chance. He was aware of a suggestion of scorn in her voice. Plus... 
an almost alarming glitter in her eyes that watched him with an unblinking stare. I'm not. I'm not afraid of anything. You should know that. But I don't know. It's easy to talk. Do something positive. She lay as motionless as a fallen statue in moonlight, and one part of him wanted to be far away in some lonely place, where that faintly mocking voice could not reach him. The other part was terrified of losing her regard. Such as? Bring me your father's wallet. He jumped up, shaking his head in shocked denial. No, no, I couldn't do that. See? She smiled sadly. He might have been refusing to bring her a cool drink on a hot day. All talk, no do. But he tried so hard to make her understand. That would be wrong. It would be stealing. Pauline sighed, and he felt an overwhelming wave of inadequacy, saw her slipping from him into a limbo of cold indifference. He made one more appeal. You can't be serious. You don't really want me to steal my father's wallet. The eyes closed, the pale face relaxed and became a beautiful mask. I do not want you to do anything. It's a matter of complete indifference to me what you do. Now go away. I'm going to sleep. Please, I'll do anything you say, but... Go away, and don't come back until you know what you are and what you want to do. You are cruel. The lips smiled. Am I? Shut the door quietly as you go out. Brian visited his beloved six times during the next three days and she was as sparing with her words, and as parsimonious with her smiles as a miser at Christmas time. On the fourth day he took the wallet from his father's jacket pocket, and like a devotee placing an offering on the altar of his god, laid it by Pauline's side. Her smile was the sun melting the ice on a moorland lake. Her happy laugh, the sound of music, heard across the immense desert of space and time. Her admiring approval, a rich reward for a trifling service. Wonderful! Gosh, I never thought you'd do it. My word, you are brave. He blushed and tried to pretend that his first act of petty larceny was of no account, but in his heart he knew he had made a long journey in a very short time. You wanted me to do it, he said. It was nothing, really. I didn't want you to do it, she explained gently. I only wanted you to want to do it. Well, I did. So you did. Let's see what's inside. The wallet's contents made a pathetic pile on the bed. Three business cards, a railway season ticket, a dentist's receipt, and twelve one-pound notes. What are you going to buy me? Pauline asked. With all that money, you can afford something really nice. But I never actually... That's why you took the wallet, wasn't it? To buy me a present? Well, I guess. Then don't tell me what it will be. I want to be surprised. Next day he bought a gold-plated bracelet from the village store, then ran all the way home to place it on her slim wrist. She thanked him with a beautiful smile. My, you are growing up, she said. Mr. Howlett shouted, and his angry roar echoed through the house making his wife tremble as she sat crying in the dining room. You took it! Don't lie any more, I know! 
You spent 11.50 on a gold bracelet. Of all bloody things, a gold bracelet. Mrs. Catford at the store told me. Now for the last time, who did you buy it for? The boy's face was sullen, and he stared blankly at the patent tablecloth. Nobody. Now look, I've taken just about as much as I can. For God's sake, don't tell me you brought a bracelet for yourself. It's bad enough to know that my son is a thief without him being a pansy. I bought it for a girl, Brian confessed. At last we're getting somewhere. All right, I'll tell you what I propose to do. I'll give you 24 hours to get it back. Whoever she is, tell her you want it back, right? Then Mrs. Catford will refund the money. Brian shook his head. Can't do that. It was a present. The man's hand shot out and grabbed the boy's coat lapels. He pulled him halfway across the table and began to speak from between clenched teeth. You will get that bloody bracelet back, or so help me, I'll make you curse the day you were born. Brian took one more step forward. He began to hate his father. Pauline was of the opinion that the older generation really were the giddy limit and completely lacking in sympathetic understanding. People cease to be human after forty, she stated with a sweet simplicity. Imagine making all that fuss over a measly twelve quid. After some consideration, Brian had to admit there was much to be said for this point of view, and expressed the hope that he would have departed from this life before he reached the ripe old age of forty. "'And he has the cheek to want my bracelet back!' exclaimed Pauline. "'He's got a hope, I don't think.' "'But what am I going to do?' Brian asked. "'He said he'll make me curse the day I was born if I don't bring it back.' Her eyes widened with horror, and for the first time her hand touched his. It was but a fleeting movement, a feather-light brushing with the fingertips, but this intimate approach gave him a moment of pure joy. You don't mean he would hurt you, beat you. He never has, but he is very angry. But whatever happens, I will never take back a present or tell him about you. I'm so lucky. You are brave, loyal and true, and I am very lucky. I guess there is nothing you wouldn't do for me. Brian moved forward and passed another milestone. One more step and he would have reached the altar of complete surrender. Nothing, nothing. If only you would... A sly smile that did not reach those glittering, hungry eyes. If only I would... what? Become really alive. You've not eaten the food I've brought, or moved, or anything. Can't you even try to get up? The glittering eyes took on a dreamy expression so that he was reminded of the sun shining through an early morning mist. Her voice was low, a harsh purr that caressed his ears and sent waves of purple fire rippling across his brain. To be together, always, in a far-off lonely place, where no one can interfere and tell us what we should do. That indeed would be heaven. But, she sighed deeply, as you can see, I cannot move, and to regain my strength. But I must not talk of what cannot be. You are only a boy, and I could not expect you to perform an act from which the strongest man alive would shrink. She allowed him a small glimpse of the seemingly unattainable, 
he saw it as a small blackbird that was swiftly flying towards a distant horizon. There was a great fear that he might never grasp it in his hands. I will do anything, absolutely anything. She considered his words for a long time, or so it seemed, then nodded slowly. So be it, but you must take me into your arms so I can whisper in your ear. There are forces in the universe that would try to block the road to our happiness. Brian gathered up the light slender form of his beloved, and her cheek was so cold when it was pressed to his. The whispered words filled his mind and smothered the fear-born thoughts. Remember Salome? She asked for something that gave her the power to walk the earth forever. Remember Salome? She asked for something that gave her the power to walk the earth forever. Eternally young, her beauty untouched by time. Remember? He did not answer, for words could not live in the blazing inferno of his brain. Pauline went on, her whispering voice bridging the ravine which divides the land of revealing light from the realm of horrific darkness. You must be very strong, be able to forget such silly words as good, evil, light, dark, and replace them all by one all-powerful word. Love. Repeat after me. Love excuses all. His tongue was permitted to speak. Love excuses all. Well done. That wasn't difficult, was it? Now we come to the hard bit. Because I am going to tell you what must be done. An act that can only be performed by a strong man who loves me. A man who wants above else to see me walk again. Are you ready? He nodded, then closed his eyes. Her fierce whisper smashed through the last frail barrier and freed him forever from the chains of conscience. Bring me your father's head on a silver tray. First, to find the tools. A carving knife, a small tenon saw, a hammer, then a silver tray from the dining-room sideboard. Second, to creep upstairs to his parents' bedroom. The tools he wrapped in his mother's apron, for it was important that they did not rattle and so rouse from sleep those who must soon slumber forever. Then he mounted the stairs and moved like a drifting shadow to the bedroom door. His hand was steady. The handle turned, and without so much as a protesting creak, the door glided open. The curtains were drawn. Moonlight bathed the room with a silver glow and clearly revealed two heads resting on pillows. It was perhaps unfortunate that his mother must also die. But without doubt were she spared, there would be distressing screams, efforts to restrain him when the deed was done. Third, the great act that was to give his beloved eternal life and youth. He silently unwrapped the tools and laid them out in a neat row on the floor, the hammer, the carving knife, the saw, and the tray. Then he walked over to the bed and examined the material on which he was to work. Mr. Howlett, as though to render his son's task easier, was lying on his stomach. One heavy blow from the hammer on the back of the neck was all that would be needed. Mrs. Howlett was even more accommodating. 
for she was flat on her back, and thus presented a plump throat for the carving-knife's ministrations. Speed and accuracy were essential. Of course his father must be dispatched first, for once he was awake, Brian would find it hard work to subdue him. In fact, there was no difficulty at all. The hammer descended onto the back of the thick neck with a resounding thud, and although there was a muffled cry, followed by an unpleasant threshing of arms and legs, it was probable that Mr. Howlett never knew what, or who, hit him. But Mrs. Howlett came up from her pillow, like a space rocket from its pad, at the same time exclaiming, "'What's that? What's that?' before Brian grabbed her hair and drew the carving-knife across her throat. The ill-formed words terminated in a gurgling scream which soon died and was succeeded by a blessed silence that was shortly broken by the drip-drip of an apparently never-ending stream of blood. Then he got down to the great act. Slice, cut, saw, lift the object from the bed, put it reverently onto the silver tray cover what remained with a clean sheet. There was no need or desire to show disrespect. As he carried the loaded tray up to the attic, he was very, very happy. Pauline was waiting for him, the blushing bride, the dream, the unattainable. She sat up and clapped her hands, looking so much more mature, even fatter, but just as desirable as ever. Her voice was huskier, too, when she said, "'You've got it. How wonderful. Bring it to me.' He laid the tray on her lap, and she ran her fingers through the blood-matted hair, fingered the staring eyes, caressed the gaping mouth, and little diamond-bright tears ran down her cheeks. "'Now I will live forever, forever and ever and—' ever. And me. Her eyes widened with momentary astonishment. Then she gave him a mocking smile. You? Oh, of course. Well, you'll be immortal, too. But in a different sort of way. Long after your poor little body has rotted away in the churchyard, you'll be remembered as the boy who murdered his mother and father. They'll make a waxwork figure of you and write songs about you, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if someone doesn't write a book about you. You know, a book with lots of long words. The muddy waters of disbelief surged over his head, but he still sought for the non-existent straw. Stop talking like that. We love one another. She shook her lovely head and clutched that which had been the property of the late Mr. Howlett to her breast. Singular? You love me, not I you. I never said anything of the sort. You did. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. If you wish to take the desire for the deed, that is your silly fault. I asked you to do me a little favour, a small service, and you did. And I am very grateful, but a gentleman does not mistake gratitude for love. You said we would be together forever. So we will. You will always live in my heart. He struck the beautiful mocking face, and her throat was clogged with unspoken words, and her eyes became blue butterflies that fluttered for a moment before disappearing into the darkness of unmeasured time. 
he put his hands round the white neck, and squeezed and squeezed, then shook and shook, until her head fell off. Then he kicked and kicked, clawed, tore, flung a leg here, tossed an arm there, snapped brittle ribs, crunched the pelvis under his feet, dismembered with a mighty rattling and a crashing, before truth came screaming in on the wings of returning, but alas, temporary sanity. He was surrounded by white broken bones, and a grinning skull lay cheek by jowl with his father's severed head. In that last lucid moment, the final gleam of sunlight that seeped through the clouds of madness, he knew why, where, and how. For sixty seconds he was permitted the gift of sight. He said slowly, as though to imprint the words on his soul for all eternity. The dreams of youth are painted doors. Open one, and a skeleton walks out. Then he screamed, and screamed, and screamed. <laughs>